I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning to uh, the book of Ephesians, where we have been now for almost uh, three months looking at different portions, and we are coming down to the very end of the book, and we are in that marvelous section of the book where the Apostle Paul has been heading. We noted that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he began that whole section with the word finally, and we noted that that word was not a wrap-up word. That's not Paul saying, okay, you know, after five and a half chapters, we're, we're getting down to the end, hang in there, we're almost done. That's not what he's doing. He's actually highlighting this part of the book, and he's saying, this is where I have been heading the entire time. I want to talk to you about this amazing spiritual thing that you're part of. There is a cosmic conflict, and he's laid out what the conflict is about. He's talked about the two sides in the conflict, the forces of God, the armies of God, and these powerful, wicked spiritual forces that are are identified in verses 10 through 13, and they are literally at war with each other. And you are in this conflict. You are a part of this battle. You are on the right side because of something that has happened to you way back in Ephesians chapter 2. God enlivened you. He opened your eyes. He brought you from death to light. He brought you out, or to life rather. He brought you out of darkness into light. And he gave you the knowledge to know the truth of the gospel, the word of truth that saved you. And two times in the book, the Apostle Paul has been praying for you and for the Ephesians and for all of his readers that God would help them to know the truth of what he is saying about them because it's so unbelievable. And that then God would empower us and enable us so that we can live in light of that reality. And so as we come now to the end, we read about this amazing conflict that is going on on a global scale, and God says to you, now there is a way for you to stand. There is a way for you to withstand the devil and anything that he throws your way, and it is by means of an armor that your champion, Jesus Christ, wore for you and now makes available to you. And so that's where we are. We've been looking at this armor. We looked at the belt of truth, and we looked at the breastplate of righteousness. And now the third piece of armor is in verse 15, where we are exhorted to take up the whole armor of God. And the the piece of armor that we're to take up for our shoes is a readiness that is given by the gospel of peace. Now, what I want to do this morning is very simple. I want to tell you a story. I want to give you the background to this particular piece of armor. And then I want to show you three things about the armor. And then I want to make an application. All right? So we're going to, we're going to hear a story. We're going to look at the background that leads up to this piece of armor. I want to show you three things about the armor, about this particular piece of armor. And then I want to make an application. So that's the roadmap for us this morning. And if you're taking notes, let me just encourage you to jot some of these things down because they're not things we normally think about when we think about the armor of God in in general and this piece in particular. Some years ago, here's the story. 
Some years ago, I, I read an old book that detailed the life story of a very famous uh, explorer. And you know the explorer. Uh, the minute I tell you his name, this explorer departed from Venice in 1571 as a 17-year-old boy. He traveled with his father and his uncle, and they made their way for the next 24 years throughout what we now know as the Far East. They traveled through Persia and China and Tibet and Burma and India. In fact, many people believe that these three men, these two men and this young boy, actually made their way as far as Japan. He left in 1571, and he returned in 1594 as a 41-year-old man, and his name was Marco Polo. You have heard of him, uh, and I'm sure that you know many stories and know many of the legends, uh, most of which have been debunked, but uh, you know the story of this man. There is a particular legend that goes well with the part of the armor that we're talking about today. Marco Polo's journey was not the first time that his father and uncle had traveled to the Far East. In fact, they had come back and, uh, and, and actually returned with, with young Marco Polo. Their first time through, they had been in the court of Genghis Khan. Now, you have heard about Genghis Khan, and you know about the immense amount of power that he had, the ruler over all the land stretching from the Mediterranean Sea to to portions of the Pacific Ocean, and certainly a a world-renowned ruler. Well, after his death, his empire eventually came under the control of one of his grandsons, named Kublai Khan. Khan was the title that you gave the ruler, and Genghis was the first name, and then his grandson, son Kublai, uh, ended up ruling over his empire. And that's when Marco Polo's dad and uncle brought young Marco Polo, and they ended up in the court of Kublai Khan. Now, there's a very interesting thing in history about Kublai Khan. Many people believe that his mother had embraced sort of a a, a heretical uh, message about Christianity. She had heard about a kind of Christianity. She had had sort of been attracted to it. So Kublai Khan had at least some understanding of the Christian message. And when Marco Polo and his dad and his uncle came into the court of Kublai Khan, they talked about many things. He wanted to know all kinds of things about where they had come from and the West, But chief of the things he wanted to know was their religion. He wanted to know why they believed what they believed. And during one of their many discussions about the Christian religion, these three men asked Kublai Khan a question. They wanted to know his reason for not becoming a Christian, given how interested he was in that religion. I mean, it was something they talked about a lot. And so at the end of their conversations with him, they wanted to know, so why is it that you don't want to embrace this religion that you have been so curious about? And here is an abridged form of his response. I want to read it to you. He said this, in my court, there are many grand and noble men 
who do not believe in your God, but rather are followers of idols and have received great powers from these idols to work miracles which they do regularly perform in my presence. If I were to become a convert to the faith of Christ and profess myself a Christian, these nobles and other persons not inclined to your religion will ask me what caused me to receive baptism and to embrace Christianity, and I shall not know what answer to make. Then they shall consider me to be in grievous error and shall without difficulty through their powers surely bring about my death. But go to your people and seek out a hundred men learned in the laws of your God and return them to me and return with them to me that they may demonstrate to all the supremacy of your God and explain the reasons why Though more powerful than idols, his followers refrain from the kinds of miracles that come from the evil spirits. When I witness this, I shall ban them and their religions, and I and my court shall be converted to Christianity, and I will be baptized. The Polo brothers and Marco returned to Venice, but could only persuade two men to make the perilous journey, both Roman Catholic priests who returned with them with a very mangled and deficient form of the gospel and 500 years of spiritual darkness fell on that part of the world. Polo's later assessment as an unsaved Roman Catholic was was this, that had better men returned to preach the gospel, perhaps the great Khan would have embraced Christianity, for it is certain that he had strong leanings toward it. A great opportunity was lost because men were not prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in Christ, primarily because the hope was not in them. You know, this story may or may not be true, but it illustrates this piece of armor that we're talking about, this third piece of armor that Christ is made available by which we, enabled by His strength, are able to stand the ground that we have given. But more than that, we are able to advance into the very heart of the dark realm over which the God of this world rules and reigns with the light of the glorious gospel of grace that we have received. So that's the story. Let me give you a little background to this piece of armor, and, uh, and then we want to draw three observations. This is the third piece of armor by which a believer stands. It is key to resisting the devil uh, and, and any attacks that come against us. In other words, when Paul talks about standing, he says, now there is a means by which you stand. There are things that have to be true about your life if you are going to actually be able to resist the devil and stand against him, and, and here's what has to be true about your life. You have to be wearing a certain belt. You have to be wearing a certain breastplate. And now you have to be wearing a certain readiness, a certain preparation that comes out of the good news, the gospel, whose content is peace. So this, this part of the armor, these three things are actually essential 
if we are going to stand against the attacks of the devil. Now, you received these three pieces of armor when you became a follower of Jesus Christ. These were given to you uh, because of your relationship to Jesus Christ, God's anointed, appointed champion. And whatever these shoes are, whatever Paul is going to tell us they are, they are described as a preparation, a readiness. The shoe is not the gospel. The shoe that you put on your feet that is going to give you stability so that you don't give ground when Satan attacks and so that you actually advance the gospel in the kingdom of darkness is a readiness and eager preparation and eager anticipation, a joyful eagerness and readiness to do something with the gospel, the good news about peace. So when we think about the shoe, whatever it is, it is a readiness, a preparation, a joyful eagerness to do something that comes out of the peace that is the good news, the gospel that Paul is talking about here. This peace is the central uh, focus of the book of Ephesians. I mean, we have been tracing this peace, this shalom, throughout the entire book. If you go back to chapter 1 and you look at verse 2, the way Paul introduces it, he says, grace and peace, shalom be to you. And just so we know that this isn't just sort of a narrow idea in verse 3, he talks about this shalom as being the reason that you have received every blessing from the Father that comes by means of the Spirit, and all of those blessings are right now yours in the realm that matters, in the spiritual realm, that is going on right next to the realm that you and I physically live in, the physical realm that you and I call the earthly realm that Paul describes as a realm that is under the control of the evil one who is energizing everyone who lives in this realm who does not know the Lord and has not received that peace. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul said, Now this peace that I talked about in verse 2 is a peace that God is bringing about for the entire universe. Everything is going to be restored to how it should be through the work of Messiah. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. He said, well, how in the world is that ever going to happen? And the answer is in chapter 2 when Jesus Christ came and wore a belt. He wore a belt of truth. We saw that when we went back to chapter 11 and we saw the word truth. Uh, Chapter 11 of the book of Isaiah, the word truth there is the word faithfulness. Jesus Christ faithfully obeyed in his human body as a God-man, but certainly in his humanity, he obeyed every single regulation, every single expectation. Jesus Christ, for his entire life in his humanity, rendered perfect obedience to God. Never once in thought, deed, or intent did he disobey. He wore that belt. And that is the obedience that God has credited to you. That's the belt you wear. 
It's not your little obedience that is marked by weakness and failure and disobedience that you have to keep coming back and fixing. It's not that obedience. It's not even the obedience of your disciplined life. It's not the obedience that sometimes we're so thankful for and sometimes in our own pride and arrogance we're even proud of. It's not that obedience at all. The obedience that God gave to you is a very different obedience. It's the obedience that Jesus Christ one when he lived on earth as a man that's the belt that he gave you that's the one that paul is talking about and that obedience resulted in the perfect meeting of god's expectations the word for that is righteousness jesus christ because of his perfect obedience gained a perfect righteousness that he wore as a breastplate and it's that righteousness that you wear as your breastplate It's not your righteousness. It's not the things that you do. Titus talks about this. It is not by our own works of righteousness that we stand before God. Remember that passage we looked at in Zechariah chapter 3 when Joshua the high priest with all his high priestly garments is being accused by Satan and God says to him through Christ, take those garments off and put a different robe on him. And that's exactly what happened to you. The obedience that Jesus rendered in his earthly life resulted in a perfect righteousness, and it is that righteousness that he gives to you. That's the breastplate that you wear. And that obedience and that righteousness created a peace. It made peace possible. And the way that peace happened to come to you, the unrighteous one, is in chapter 2, when Paul says, now this champion who wore the belt of truth and won the breastplate of righteousness did something stunning. He took your place. He became your substitute. And he died on the cross that you should have died on because of your guilt and your sins. And in so doing, he tore down the hostility, this wall that was impenetrable and unbreachable. He tore that wall down between you and God and between you and each other. And this shalom, this peace is what he gives to you. Jesus looked at his disciples on the way to winning that peace and he said to them, my peace I give to you. My peace, I leave with you. And he's really clear about this is not the kind of peace that you're going to find anywhere in the world. If you're looking for peace in the world, there are many solutions, there are many options, there are many ways in which you can attempt to find what we're talking about here. Maybe you're going to find it in security. Maybe you're going to find it in possessions and in the accumulation and protection of wealth. Maybe you're going to find it in some satisfaction that that you have uh, determined will make you happy. Maybe it's in your good health. Maybe it's in the car you drive. Maybe it's in your bank account. Maybe it's in the family that you think you have. And Jesus says, now, that kind of peace is not what I'm talking about. I have a very, very different kind of peace, and it's, it comes from a very different source. I mean, in Paul's day and in Jesus' day, 
the world had a peace. It was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And if you've ever studied history, that period of time is actually called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and it was enforced. It was won by a sword, and it was enforced by a sword. And Jesus says, now that isn't the kind of peace I'm talking about. So as you think about our champion wearing the belt of truth and wearing the breastplate of righteousness, in Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10, he wears the shoes of peace. In the book of Isaiah, we meet two servants who are commissioned by God and they are sent out by God with a message. You know the servants. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah himself is one of the servants. He sees God high and lifted up. And immediately he starts realizing, I am not worthy even to look on this. Later in John, we find out that he's actually looking at Christ. Seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And and he's overwhelmed by this. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And immediately one of the seraphim comes and takes a coal from off the altar and cleanses Isaiah, touches his lips. Remember this? And then there's a question, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'll go. I want to go. What do you want me to do? And, and, And God says to him, I want you to announce something. I have a message I want you to announce. And when you start reading the message, it is one of judgment. I want you to go to all Israel and and I want you to preach to them until their ears don't hear and their eyes don't see. And I want you to preach until judgment comes and destroys this nation except for a small remnant. Forty-four chapters later, you read about another servant who is commissioned by God. And he's sent by God. He says, God says to him, go to the mountain of Israel and take your shoes and your feet and announce something to them. Publish good news. Isaiah went to these people and he had to publish the news of judgment. Here is Another servant, and he's coming with a completely different message. And the message is, there is salvation, there is deliverance, there is peace. Why? Because your God reigns. 800 years later, a baby boy is born in the city of David, Bethlehem of Judea. And on the night of his birth... An angel announces, good news of great joy will be to all people. This is Luke 2. Why? Because to you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, Messiah, Lord. It's a stunning story, isn't it? And a whole army of angels join him and they say glory to God in the highest and on earth what peace among those with whom he is well pleased you know this baby boy his name was Jesus he came into the very heart 
of the realm of darkness. He came into the very soul of Satan's kingdom to make a peace. And he did. He rescued those who were captives. He delivered those who were slaves in the kingdom of darkness and made them sons and daughters of God, members of God's own household, we read in Ephesians chapter 2. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, this messenger, this servant of Yahweh who has made this peace stands on a mountain at the end of Matthew 28, and he announces that he reigns. Remember Isaiah 52? You go and announce and publish good news, glad tidings of peace and salvation and deliverance. Why? Because your God reigns. And 800 years later on a mountain, Jesus looks at a few disciples and he says to them, I reign. All authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and on earth. And he charges those disciples to go and do in the kingdom of darkness what he had done. You go into the same kingdom of darkness and you go to every nation, every tongue, every tribe, and you publish the news of the peace that I've made. It's a stunning thing. And there was a man named Paul who had a vision of this disciple and he said this to the Romans. I am eager. I am ready. I am prepared to preach the gospel everywhere to anyone, Jew or Gentile, because of what I know. The gospel is the authority of God. It is the ability of God to save anyone who does what? Believes. And now the Apostle Paul looks at you And he looks at me, who have been the recipients of Paul's message in the book of Ephesians, the the publishing of this amazing gospel of peace that is now our gospel of peace. And at the end of the book, Paul says, now here's where I've been going. You need to strap on that readiness, and you need to take that news that is now yours about King Jesus who rescued us and delivered us and saved us and gave us shalom and made us members of his own house, you need to do with that gospel that changed you the very same thing I did when that gospel changed me. It turned me into someone who was ready, eager, joyful to take the gospel anywhere to anyone. Now you strap on the shoes of that readiness that comes out of the immensity of the peace that the gospel brought to you, and you do the same thing. You go into the kingdom of darkness. Go everywhere. Go throughout Ephesus. Go to Colossae. Go to Istanbul. Go to Greece. Go to Turkey. Go everywhere and publish on every mountain this incredible news. In Isaiah 52, the servant was singular. When Paul talked about it in Romans 10, he quotes that same text, and it's plural. Now it is messengers. How beautiful are the feet of them who preach the good news. Because Paul has a question in Romans chapter 10. He says this, let me remind you of something. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No question about it. Right out of Joel chapter 2 verse 32. But then he says this, how will people call 
on a person they have not believed in. And how will they believe on that person if they've never heard of that person? And how are they to hear about that person if somebody isn't publishing, announcing, heralding that news? And how will people go to herald that news unless they are sent, unless they are commissioned? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those, plural, who preach the gospel. That's why Paul looks at us, now that we have the righteousness of God and the obedience of Christ, now that we have that, it produces this amazing shalom. And Paul says that should produce in you an eager readiness to take that gospel and that news everywhere. So, with that backdrop in mind, here are three things I want you to think about as you think about doing that. How do I actually wear these shoes? How do I actually wear this readiness? And here's the first thing that has to happen in your life and in mine. You and I must possess this peace personally. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, when we sit in a room like this and we let Paul talk to us and we sort of suspend what we think we know about a text and we actually let that text talk to us? So many times when I read the Bible, and, and I'm sure you find this to be true, I have so much white noise going on, so much background noise going on because of what I've heard or what I've thought about that text, and sometimes we just have to let Paul tell us what he's trying to tell us. And what he's trying to tell us is there is an amazing armor that God wore for you and that because of your relationship to him, because of your union with him, that armor now clothes you. You have this obedience. You have this righteousness. And you have this peace. It is yours. It is unshakable. Nothing can touch it. No disease can take this peace away. No loss financially can take this peace away. No, no human reversal can take this peace away. No uncertainty about life can take this peace away because this peace was a peace that was not based on any of those things. When you got this peace, it wasn't economically based, it wasn't politically based, it wasn't socially based, it came because of a peacemaker that you have an intimate, inextricable, unchangeable relationship to. He is the one who made this peace. He made the peace. He guarantees the peace because he is the peace. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Think about how humans make, make peace with one another. They make an agreement. We're going to get together and we're going to agree that our differences are going to be set aside. I'm going to set aside my difference with you and you're going to set aside your difference with me. And on the basis of that agreement, we're going to have peace. Think about two countries who are at war, they make peace with each other through a treaty. Here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to agree to this. You're going to agree to that. We're going to sign the treaty. And as long as the treaty makers are in power, then that treaty is going to stand. That is not 
how the peace that we're talking about this morning was made. You don't have that peace because God signed a treaty with you. That's not how you got this peace. That's why when you think about it that way, if you do something, you're like, oh, okay, I'm done. I blew it again, and now I don't have peace, and i got to go figure out how to start all over, and i got to earn my way back into favorable status so I can have peace. And Jesus is going, that isn't at all what I did. And Paul is saying, that's not the peace I'm talking about. This is not a peace that's based on your performance. You didn't get this peace because you obeyed so well, and you aren't going to destroy this peace because of your disobedience. If your obedience didn't get the peace for you, your disobedience can't take it away from you. Because it was never about your obedience. It was always about somebody else's obedience. It was always about Jesus' obedience. How many times do we labor as Christians wondering if God likes us? I don't know, maybe, maybe God's upset at me. That's why all of this is going on. That's why this happened to my job. That's why this happened to my family. That's why this went on. This is why this economic disaster came upon me. It's because God is upset with me. And Paul is saying to you, you missed the whole point about this peace. It was never about that. Because the peace was never based on your obedience. It was always based... On Christ's. Well, Pastor Sam, you just don't understand. You don't know how this area of my life that I struggle with over and over and over, this unrighteousness that I hate, but I keep going back to, and, and it's, just, it's just destroyed peace. And the answer is no, it didn't. It, it maybe destroyed your understanding of peace, but it never affected the true peace that you have with God the Father because it was never based on your unrighteousness or on your righteousness, rather. And it can never be touched by your unrighteousness because it was always about the righteousness of Jesus. And as long as Jesus is alive, that peace stands. That's why the resurrection is so important. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then we are of all the world, of all the people in the world, those of us who are banking on this righteousness and on this obedience and on this trust, if, or, 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 on this peace, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are done. We are of all men most miserable. But he did rise. And he is at the right hand of the Father. And as long as Jesus lives, this peace is yours. You don't earn it. You don't enhance it. It's like, well, thanks for the peace. Now let me, let me polish it a little bit. Let me just add a little bit to it. No, 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 no. You got the very best version of peace the universe has ever seen. There is no improving on it. You got the very pristine version of peace, and it is yours as long as you belong to Jesus. And as a Christian, how long are you going to belong to Jesus? Forever. Now, can I just stop here for a second? 
there ought to be something so stunning about that news that you actually wonder if it's true. Like, are you sure? And that's why Paul keeps coming back to peace in the book. This is so amazing because no, nothing else on earth looks like this. There is nothing on earth that will give anybody this kind of assurance about this kind of peace. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep you struggle, no matter how far you have fallen, Jesus said, it's never about that. It was always about my obedience. It was always about my righteousness. And therefore, my peace I give to you. You don't earn it. I mean, how many times have we labored throwing brick after brick after brick in our wagon to the point that we can barely pull it, and then we come to church and our pastor throws three more bricks on it, and then we finally just say there's absolutely no way. That's why Jesus said, no, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not my yoke. I'm not putting that on you. My yoke is what? Light. It's easy. Why? Because it's peace. And so you and I have to possess this peace personally. You say, well, how do I get it? I get it the way Jesus said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Aren't you tired? of trying to live up to something God never intended for you to live up to? Man, maybe if I could just cobble enough obedience together, I could get to heaven. Maybe if I could just mount up enough righteousness over here, I could make up for all the unrighteousness over here, and maybe God will say, okay, you know what, I'm impressed, come on in. And even as Christians, we have that mentality, don't we? Maybe if I could just... Not sin for seven days in a row. My prayer is going to get a little better chance of getting answered. Or maybe if I could just figure out how to pile up my, my duct tape righteousness, I could, I could impress God and, and maybe he would, he would sort of accept me. And Jesus just explodes all of that. And he says, this peace is your, my peace I give unto you. So we need to possess this peace personally and that just comes by recognizing that God is going to give us this peace on the basis of what Jesus did not on the basis of what I do on the basis of what Jesus promised to do not on the basis of what I promised to do all I can do is come and say my life is a mess look at all of this unrighteousness look at all of this disobedience Lord I repent I turn from that but I don't know how to fix it I need your forgiveness. I need your obedience. I need your righteousness. And God the Father says, done. Done. It's it's that simple. And if you've never seen it that way, if you've never done that, then I would invite you this morning, even while I'm preaching, right as you're sitting, to cry out to God and to say, God, this is great news. This is good news. I have heard great joy this morning out of the message that you are publishing, that you reign, that you made a peace, that you extended righteousness, that you gave obedience, that you deliver, that you say because you reign and I want to be in your kingdom. I want to be in your family.
please forgive me and embrace me as a son or as a daughter. And you know what? God will do that. So you must possess the peace personally. Secondly, you must protect the peace. You must possess it, but, but you must protect it with others. Why? Because this matters to God. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about preserving the unity of the Spirit with a particular kind of bond. The word bond there is the idea of glue. A substance that holds two broken things together. Or two things that you're trying to join, there is a bond, a a glue, a mortar, something that you put together that holds those things together. And God says to you, I've given you a peace, and, and that peace is in the person of Jesus Christ, and because you now have that peace, you are bonded together with me. You are bonded together with Christ, but you are also bonded together with other Christians. There is a unity that you have with each other that comes out of that. And you have a responsibility to protect that unity. The unity that you have with me is protected by Christ, but the unity that you have with one another is a unity that you have to cultivate. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, we are told to work hard. The idea there is to be eager, to labor, to protect the peace that God has given us that holds our unity together. And and there are two things that have to happen if I'm going to do that. If I'm going to be at peace with you, and I'm going to be at peace with my family, I'm going to be at peace with my co-labors, there are two things I have to do. Number one, I have to constantly ask God to help me cultivate his character in my life and particularly two pieces of that character and they are lowliness of mind and meekness or graciousness the lowliness of mind the humility speaks of how i see myself and the graciousness the meekness is is how i interact with other people what they experience as they encounter me you know how many conflicts would be resolved in churches or in our own relationships if we would just say you know what i i i don't deserve this what what i'm going to look at it through your lens i'm going to be gracious and meek. i'm not going to demand to be right i'm not going to demand to win i i don't have to win i i don't have to be right i don't have to get even with you why because my status is not threatened by you because my status is is assured of by by christ who made this peace so i'm going to have to cultivate certain dispositions in in myself certain parts of christ's character lowliness of mind and meekness and then i'm going to have to cultivate some responses that are like christ's Specifically, two in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, long-suffering and forbearance. Long-suffering speaks to tolerating and lovingly uh, just enduring people who are constantly irritated with us. And they're aggressively coming against us because of something they don't like about us or something they wish were different about us. We have an English word for this called animosity. There's, There's some... People that, you know, you meet them and, 
and five minutes in, they, they don't like you. They're, there's something they saw about you. There's something they heard in you, and they're irritated with you, and they bear some level of animosity. And you know what God says? Put up with that. Just bear it. That's exactly what Jesus did with you while you were yet a sinner. Christ died for you. And then I'm going to need not just long-suffering, but I'm going to need forbearance with those that I'm irritated with. I can't believe you said that again. I can't believe you did that again. Why can't you just change this? I really don't like this. And, and there are a hundred ways to Sunday that we're irritated. We're irritated with people. We're irritated with how something goes. I gave you my opinion and you didn't listen to it. I wrote you six emails and you didn't listen to them. Isn't that true? You know what Paul says? If you're going to keep the unity and the bond of peace, you're not just going to have to be long-suffering to those who are irritated with you. You're going to have to forbear. You're going to have to give up your right to demand things from the people that irritate you. You know, we have to do this in our lives, don't we? And this is exactly what Jesus did. And that brings me to the final thing, and that is this. So why do this? Man, Pastor Sam, I get the wonderful part about owning the peace, and I love that part of the message, but why go through the trouble of this middle part where I've got to protect the peace, where I've got to show uh, this, this Christ-like character and this Christ-like response to people that just consistently irritate me or to people that no matter what I do or what I say or how hard I try, they are implacable. They just won't change. And they constantly remain irritated with me and aggravated with me. And yeah, we have this friendship and and yeah, we we have this relationship, but it's all one-sided. They're always irritated with me, and no matter what I do, I can't seem to fix it. I can fix it for a little while, and then we're right back. Or what about this person that, that, man, I just try everything. They get on my very last nerve. And they've been on that last nerve for a long time. In fact, I don't even know I have that nerve anymore. So why go through the trouble? And the answer is because of what you're supposed to do with the peace. And and, and so that's the third thing. We must propagate this peace passionately. Paul talked about it this way in verse 19 of chapter 6. Pray for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The reason we have the peace and the reason we protect the peace is so that when we go to share the peace, we will have a credible message. I mean, how in the world do you expect a lost person to believe that there can be peace with God through this gospel if the gospel isn't even strong enough to have peace among yourselves? And so we work hard to maintain the peace of the gospel so that we can propagate the amazing shalom of the gospel graciously and boldly by submitting to the gospel personally as its ambassadors and by being willing to suffer for this gospel. 
God has chosen to advance the gospel through people who have experienced it. I mean, you think about this. In the New Testament, the people who took the gospel to the world of their day were people who had radically experienced the gospel in their own life. And when they took the gospel to the world of their day, what did they experience? I mean, think about the message. Hey, there is peace with God. You're talking to a Jew. Hey, there's peace with God. There is shalom. A Jew's going, that's awesome. How do I find it? Well, it's in Messiah. Great. We've been waiting for Messiah for all these years. Where is he? Answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Immediately there's a reaction to that. You can't be serious. Jesus of Nazareth is not our Messiah. Why? He was crucified on a cross, and God would never let his anointed champion do that or experience that. So he's not our Messiah. And if you keep talking that way, we have an obligation under the law of Moses to do something about your blasphemy. We are going to stone you. Take that message to a Greek, like Paul did in Acts. And everybody's like, this is awesome. Oh, man, are you kidding me? This is the new religion. We've never heard about this. Keep talking to us. And then all of a sudden, he gets to the place where he talks about the resurrection. It's like, hearty, har, har, har. That's not going to happen. Try out telling the Romans that there is a different Caesar, a different Lord. There is somebody other than Caesar who is Lord and who is Savior. Try that one out and see what imperial Rome does when they find out you're going around the empire telling people that there is a different Lord than Caesar. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. You strap on an eager readiness to take the gospel into those hard places. And here's what you're going to experience. Jesus said, look, when you're in the world, I'm going to tell you what you're going to experience. You are going to experience trouble. Tribulation. John 16, 33. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You remember that story that we started with? Marco Polo, Kublai Khan, 500 years of darkness. Well, in 1850, there was another opportunity to go to that same part of the world, and at first it didn't look like much, but one man was ready. He was eager to give up houses and lands and family and friends to take the news of this shalom that Jesus reigns to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. I've been to China, 100 missionaries in 60 years because of Hudson Taylor's passion. And since the time of Hudson Taylor's death, there are over 100 million Chinese Christians in the century after Hudson Taylor strapped on his gospel boots and went to China. I've been to China. Some of you have been to China. I've actually met Christians whose families came to know Christ because of Hudson Taylor's ministry. One man strapped on gospel boots and took the true gospel, the true shalom, and changed an entire country. 
you know, sometimes I think we think that's so impossible. We'll never be able to do something like that. And it is true. There are sometimes, you know, we have the word go in our values uh, as, as Palmetto Baptist. And sometimes we get in love with the idea of going. It's like, oh, I'm going to go. And the idea is we get in love with the idea of going. We're going to go to some remote place on the planet. We're going to go to Istanbul. We're going to go here or there. And we're not supposed to get in love with the idea of going. We're supposed to get in love with the idea of sharing. That's why one of the first questions I ask when I do any interviewing of a person who wants to do the go is, well, tell me how you're sharing the gospel right now. Because how in the world are we supposed to think that you're going to share the gospel magically when you get to place X when you're really not doing anything with that gospel now? You want to go plant a church? Well, how many people are you witnessing to and how is that going? How are you bringing people in to the body of Christ now? I mean, we get in love with the idea of going when we should be in love with the idea of this eager readiness to share the gospel anywhere with anybody. This happened this weekend. And I want to close with this story and then we'll pray. This is what it looked like for about 15 community people here in our region to meet men and women from Palmetto Baptist who strapped on gospel boots. There's a language institute in our town, and Pastor Hiro uh, put together an initiative to just do a gospel fellowship with the folks in this language institute. And so they all came to my house on Friday. And for about four hours, we just sat around and talked. There were people from Turkey. There were people from Colombia. There were people from Puerto Rico. There were people from Honduras. There was a couple from Japan. And we sat around and we ate and we talked and the gospel was shared in multiple private conversations. And I would suggest to you that that could happen to any one of you. There was a couple that came into one of the places in my home where I have a display of butterflies. And they wanted to know about these butterflies. And I began sharing the story behind these butterflies. A good friend of mine came to know the Lord because of his study in college of intelligent design. And and, and it was connected to the study of butterflies. And so now, as a very successful businessman, he gives away huge displays of beautiful butterflies to people and tells them the story of how he came to Christ. Well, I have one of those displays, and this couple wanted to hear about it. And they had an opportunity, in a very personal and private way, to hear the gospel of the peace of God that comes through Christ. And that wouldn't have happened on Friday night if about 15 of our Palmetto Baptist members weren't willing to strap on their gospel boots and say, can we get together? Can we have a meal? Can we talk gospel? You can do that. And there is an opportunity coming up to do that very soon in our church. It's simple. You say, well, I I want to wear gospel boots, but... You know, I, I, I don't know what that means. Well, let me give you an example of go for us. We're going to have an opportunity to have a trunk or treat as a church. Are you kidding me? Trunk or treat? Yeah. 
Do you know what every parent is looking for right now whose kids want to go trick-or-treating? They're looking for a place to do it what? Safely. And so why not use our trunks for gospel opportunity and gospel outreach? All it means is you bring your car and some candy and you sit around and you talk to people that come up. You say, well, I mean, ah, Pastor, I don't know. That's like on, that's a day, I'm, that's like my family day. That's when we just, that's kind of when we're all together. That's kind of, you know, I don't know I want to do that. Well, I mean, that's the point. That's the point. If we're not really interested in something as simple as using our car and our trunk and a few little pieces of candy with a gospel communication inserted to say, we want to to, to put on the gospel boots we have in a very simple way, what makes us think we're going to be able to do it in a hard way? And I just want to challenge you as a church. Before you think too hard about going somewhere far away, let's think about going somewhere really close. Let's think about something as simple as using our trunks and our cars and our houses and our backyards and our picnic table to strap on our gospel shoes with our neighbors and our friends and say, can we tell you about the most amazing peace that God has made? Lord, thank you for your grace and for your help and for your goodness in what you have done. Lord, we really are stunned to think about the peace that you made and to think all the way back in Isaiah that there was a messenger that was was going to the mountain to announce this peace to Israel. And when you came to make this peace, you came to those people and they did not receive you and so You opened the door for us, the outsiders, to receive it. So, Lord, we don't want to reject that peace this morning. Lord, if there's someone here that needs that peace, I pray that you would work in their heart. Maybe you're here this morning and that's you. Maybe you're saying, Pastor Sam, you know what? I've never heard the armor talked about like this. I never realized it was the obedience of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus and the peace of Jesus that, that, that is my standing before God. And to be honest, I've never, I've never embraced that. I've always tried to do it. And I've had really bad ideas about what it means to be saved. And God is slowly opening my eyes and I want that salvation. I want that good news. I want Jesus to reign in my heart. You know, if that's you this morning, let me just encourage you to tell the Lord that. Just tell them that. Repent. Say, I repent of my sin. I turn from it and I need help. And I want that forgiveness. I want that peace. I want that righteousness. I want that obedience that you won for me. Joel said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul repeated that in Romans 10. And God has sent you a messenger to tell you that this morning will you embrace that message so i'd like to talk about that well talk to any one of us any pastor any deacon here we'd be happy to have a cup of coffee with you and talk about what the what that means for you maybe you're here and you're saying you know i've never really thought about using my car or using my house or using my possessions as gospel shoes 
that's new for me, and I need to think about how to do that, but let me encourage you to pray for that as I close this morning. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.